Hear, O Israel. Lord, we desire to hear from you tonight. And as you spoke to the churches there in Revelation, and you asked the question, or made the statement to him who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit would say to the church. Lord, we all have ears here tonight, but we want to hear with the ear of our hearts that you might speak to us, that you might have your way in us this night as we look at your word. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Samuel chapter 24. We're continuing to work our way through the book of First Samuel. It's been said that great people are generally prepared for great works by great trials. And at this particular time in David's life, he's being prepared for a great work. He's becoming a great person. And that's why we see him going through a great trial. The plan of God is for David to ascend to the throne there in Israel to be the next king. But to prepare David for that, we see the Lord allowing David to go through a series of difficult trials. It was Alan Redpath who made this remark and insight. God had a great purpose of blessing, a great destiny for David. But at this point, he was being put through the crucible of testing to determine his fitness for what God had planned for him. You see, this was all a part of the making of this man of God. This is what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's another time, it's another test, it's another part of the training process in David's life. We pick it up in verse 1. It says, Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. In that barren and desolate territory surrounding the Dead Sea is a canyon that runs westward from the Dead Sea. The canyon is called Engedi, and it is a beautiful place. There's beautiful waterfalls, and there's lush vegetation, and it really seems more like a tropical paradise than being in the middle of a desert. And if the Lord uh, ever leads us to take another trip to Israel, you can come along and see this place. It is still very beautiful even to this very day. But as you walk up into this canyon, what you find is, is that there are numerous caves there along the hillside. Numerous caves, great places for hiding out. And this is where David and his men would choose to hide out at this particular time. Because being there in the middle of this barren desert, the scouts could get up. They could look out and they could see an army approaching from a great distance. It was also a great place because of the waterfalls. There was plenty of waterfall. And because of the lush vegetation, there was a lot of wildlife there for them to eat. And so it was a great place. And this is where they chose at this particular time to camp out, to hide out, to find their place of refuge. We pick it up in verse 2. It says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. 
And so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. And David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Now the reference here to the sheepfolds indicates that this was a large cave. That's why or how David and most of his 600 men could be hidden there in the recesses of the cave while Saul and his men were camping out in the canyon and Saul and his men would have no idea that they were in there. And we read here that Saul went into one of these caves to attend to his needs. He was going to the bathroom. That's what he was doing. So he's going in there to relieve himself. And think about this. There, there were many, many caves that, that Saul could have chosen to go in and do this. But he chooses the very one that David and his men are in. Now, you think that was an accident? No, this was a God thing. God was at work here. I mean, what are the chances? There's probably at least a hundred caves there. And Saul picks the very one that David and his men are hiding inside of. This was no coincidence. But this was arranged by God to train David and to display the godly character of David. We pick it up in verse 4. It says, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day... Of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Now, David's men see this as an opportunity for revenge. They see it as an opportunity to extend vengeance. They say to David, the Lord has delivered your adversary into your hand. And apparently the Lord had spoken through one of the prophets, be it Gad or Samuel, that a day was going to come when when the Lord would deliver his enemy into his hands that he might do what seemed good to him. Now, here's the deal. The, The men of Israel, David's men who are with him, they look and what seems good to them, kill him. What seems good to them is get rid of this guy. What seems good to them is, is here's your chance, David. That's how David's men see this, this situation as a purpose to strike. They, they see it as an opportunity for justice. But that's not the way that David saw it. David saw it as an opportunity to extend Grace. We pick it up at the end of verse 4. It says, And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. And so David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. So instead of killing Saul, what David does is he sneaks up next to him. He takes his knife or takes his sword and he cuts a piece of Saul's robe. Grabs it there in his hand. Kind of sneaks away. Saul finishes you know, his business and goes out of the cave. But here's the thing. After David cuts the robe, he's not going to kill him. He thinks, you know, I'll just cut his robe. But after he does that, I mean, he's, he's brokenhearted by it. He's remorseful afterwards for doing even that, that he would defile the garment of the king, the Lord's anointed. This shows the amazing heart of David. 
That in such a small area, such a little thing, his heart is broken. And you know, I think that all of us, we need to really pray that we would have that type of sensitivity toward even just the smallest things, the smallest areas where we might be disobedient or we might get into the flesh. I know so often, you know, in my life, there are times where I can seem to rationalize something away by saying, oh, it's just a little thing. It's not that big of a deal. But here we see this amazing heart in David. This amazing heart that would would make him, you know, this man that God would call a man after his own heart. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, there's two men that that really stand out to me, that really kind of grab my attention, two men that I really admire a lot and that I, I seem to find myself constantly coming back to and looking at their lives. One is David because he was given that title, a man after God's own heart. And I read that and I think, you know what, there's something special about this guy. There's some things we can learn about this man. There's some things that we, as we study, as we look at his life. And so I often find myself coming back to David. And what I find in David is I see a lot of Jesus in David, this man after God's own heart. But not just David, but also Abraham, because Abraham was also given a very unique title. He was called the friend of God. And so I look at both of these guys because I want to be God's friend and I want to be a man after God's own heart. And so I want to learn. I want to study and look at these guys and their lives. And here we see in David's life this amazing heart. He doesn't kill the king. He cuts his robe and then he's grieved by it. Now, I want to ask you this question tonight. How do we view opportunities like this in our lives? How do we view the opportunities that that come into our lives when you have the opportunity to lay into someone? When you have the opportunity, let's say, you know, you know, somebody they've blown it. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've offended you in a in a very deep way. and, And now they're in your path. What do you do? Do you blast them? Do you lay into them? Do you let them have it? Or do you show them grace? Do you extend mercy? Or let's say their name comes up in a conversation and it's in a negative sense. Somebody's kind of slamming them a little bit and, and you know some dirt on that person or maybe that person has irritated you a time or two. What do you do? Do you share it? Oh, you should hear what I heard about them. Oh, man, you know, and, and do you do that? Or when somebody starts saying, you know, guys, so-and-so really bugs me. Do you? Oh, they really bug me, too. Oh, you should have seen what they did the other day. I mean, gosh, I was about ready to pull my hair out. What, What do you do? How do you handle that type of situation? Do you join in the verbal assault or do you extend mercy by saying nothing at all? Or even better, show grace by finding something good to say. David's men saw this as an opportunity from God to strike at Saul, to put an end to Saul. But David saw it differently. Why? I want us to note several reasons and make some application for our own lives. If you're taking notes, number one, it's because David viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed. Saul was chosen to be king in Israel. And therefore, David, who had killed many Philistines and other enemies of God, wasn't going to touch Saul. 
He wasn't going to lash out against him and and even felt bad for cutting off the piece of Saul's robe because he viewed Saul. He still looked at Saul. He was there. He was the, 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 the king. God put him in that place. David looks at him. He's the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's anointed. Now, here's the application for us. Every believer in Jesus Christ is anointed of the Lord in this sense. Every believer. How many of you are believers here in Jesus Christ tonight? Okay. Probably almost all of you, or if not all of you. You are anointed of the Lord in this sense. You're anointed in this way. He's placed his Holy Spirit inside of your heart. Now think about that. That is such a radical, mind-blowing thing that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the hearts of believers in Jesus Christ. You are anointed of the Lord. You're God's child. But not only that, you and I, as believers, we have been given a robe. The Bible says that when we came to Christ, that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the robe that we put on, that robe of righteousness, so that when God looks at you and I, He sees us positionally in the righteousness of Christ. That's how God sees us. As holy and righteous. Now, we look at ourselves, we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror. The last thing that we think is, man, you're a righteous dude, you know, or a righteous dudette. We don't think that when we look into the mirror. We don't think that when we look at one another. We see our flaws, we see our shortcomings, but that's how God sees us. And that's why I love that verse that Paul says there. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, where he says, I sought to know no man after the flesh. What Paul's saying there is, I don't want to see your, the people in their flesh. I don't want to look at my brothers and sisters and see them in their flaws. I want to see them in that robe of righteousness. I want to see them the way that God does. I used to be so critical with people. But that verse has just radically changed my life and outlook because I really try to practice what Paul was saying there. Hey, I want to look at it. I want to see. I want to look for the Lord in them. I want to see the Lord in my brothers and sisters. But, but that's the application for us. That every believer is anointed in the sense that God's spirit is in them and they've been robed in the righteousness of Christ. The question is, are we going to touch the Lord's anointed? Are we going to cut off a piece of their robe? Here's what I mean. You see, the tongue can be like a sword. David mentions this in several Psalms. The tongue being like a sword. And we can use our tongues to cut someone in to pieces. To rip them apart. Or we can use our tongues to cut a piece of their robe of righteousness that they have been given by Christ by being critical and cutting with our words or by spreading, you know, the dirt on them. You know, Saul, after this event, most likely went home and discarded that robe because there would be this chunk cut out of it. It was no good to him anymore. How many robes have we maybe ruined with our words? How many brothers and sisters in Christ have we maimed in the eyes of others by simply cutting someone down with our words? You know, one of the problems I think we have here in America is that we are a very opinionated people. 
And our culture, in fact, trains us to be that way, to think critically. And because we think critically, we cast our opinions. And we have all these critics in our society that want to give their opinion and criticize everything. We have food critics and movie critics and radio talk shows where, that are bent on callers calling in and just being critical about everything that you can think of. The president gives a speech and there's 20 million people on every network picking every single part of it apart. That's how we are in this nation. But the problem is when we carry that same type of criticalness into the body of Christ. Where we start to just look at everything and everybody in this critical type of way. Now, having said that, understand this. There is a place. A biblical place for pointing out false teachers, false prophets, and false teachings, and heresies. In fact, it's our biblical responsibility to do that. I would not be a good shepherd of the sheep if I didn't warn you of things that could be detrimental to your walk with the Lord. So we have to do that. It's vitally important that we do that. But there's no place for simply being critical. Pointing out flaws, pointing out the sins, pointing out the failures and the shortcomings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they're anointed of the Lord. God's spirit is in them. And so that's one application for us. And we need to be careful to not touch the Lord's anointed by using our tongue to cut up or to cut down another believer. And if they've hurt us, we need to pray for them. We need to do what the Bible says and lovingly confront them. Now, the second thing that we need to see in this statement concerning Saul being the Lord's anointed is this. Whether David realized this or not, David refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. And here's what I want you to see. Saul was the Lord's anointed instrument to work on David and in David at this particular time. Saul was the Lord's anointed instrument in David's life. Now, this is crucial for us to understand. Saul had long since lost his anointing to be king. Saul was now merely a usurper. He was trying to hold on to the power and position that really no longer belonged to him. He was in the flesh. He'd ordered the the, the massacre of of a whole city full of priests. Saul is in a mess at this particular time. And here he is again, gathering 3,000 of the choicest men to do what? To go search the countryside, to leave the people unguarded, to go and try to find David. That's the mess that Saul's in. He's in this mess of a place because of his pride, his sin, his rebellion, because of his arrogance. But here's the thing. God was also allowing Saul to be an instrument by which he would prepare David to be the king in Israel. Now, again, here's the application for this in our own lives. Is there someone in your life right now? Is there someone right now in your life that that in that moment of honesty, you would say, Lord, please get them out of my life. Lord, please just remove them. Lord, please just do away with them. Do you have someone in your life right now in that position? Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a friend or so-called. Maybe, I hate to say this, 
Maybe it's your spouse. You find yourself just going, Lord, just get rid of them. Lord, they just bug me. They irritate me. They're, they're this thorn in my flesh. Understand. God has allowed that person to be in your life for a reason. And they are God's instrument to work on you. They are God's instrument to teach you. They are God's instrument to mold and shape and and train you. Here's Saul. He's out for David's blood. He had nothing in his heart towards David but to destroy him. And on this day, David has the opportunity to remove this source of discomfort in his life. But he doesn't do it. Why? Because he viewed him as the Lord's anointed in his life. Now, what about that boss, that relative, that so-called friend, that spouse, Whoever that person might be, you look at them and you say, he can no way be an instrument of God. He's a waste. You see no good in that person whatsoever. And so when you see that person, you want to avoid them. You want to distance yourself from them. You want to blast them. You want to cut them with your words. Note, that person, he or she is there in that position Only because they are the Lord's instrument right now. He could easily remove them. Having problems with your spouse, the Lord could easily kill your spouse. Now, don't be praying for that. But he could. He could do that. He could easily do that, but he doesn't. He hasn't. Why? Because he's an instrument. She's an instrument. He's a vessel of God at this particular time. And if you start to kill that person with your words, then you're killing the Lord's anointed instrument in your life to make you more like him. You know, when I start to have problems with someone, one of the first things that I try to do, I'm not always successful. I oftentimes react in my flesh and get all frustrated and I start moaning and groaning. But what I try to do is to pray, Lord, what am I supposed to be learning out of this? What do you want to do in my life? What are you trying to teach me? You've allowed this for a reason. What are you wanting to teach me? Is it patience? Is it compassion? Is it kindness? Is there some area where where maybe I'm lacking and you're trying to, to grow me? What is it, Lord? I want to learn. I want to get I want to get this over with. You know, I want to learn it, Lord. So what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to do? You've brought this person that irritates the heck out of me into my life for a reason. Why? I want to be open to that. David, whether he understands it or not, what he says is very, very true. Saul was the Lord's anointed in his life at this particular time. Lesson number three is because David viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed, he was willing to wait for the Lord to deal with Saul and not take matters into his own hands. We pick it up in verse eight. It says, and David also arose afterwards and went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. Here we see David's humility still and his respect for the position that Saul held as the king. He bows down and David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? 
It's like, come on, Saul, you know better than this. Why are you listening to these lies? Verse 10, look this day. Your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see you. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Now here's the key, verse 12. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. And as the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you he David is saying God's going to have to do this God's going to have to deal with this and then in verse 14 he says after whom has the king of Israel come out whom do you pursue a dead dog a flea therefore let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand so David insisted here that he would not touch Saul And he insisted that his men would not touch Saul. Now, I want you to think about this. What would have happened if those 600 men had watched David cut Saul into pieces? What would have happened if those 600 men had watched David run Saul through and kill him? What kind of men would they have become? Well, they would have become men who learned how to take matters into their own hands. They would have become men who refused to be shaped and molded by God. Note that this situation was not just God's way of training David, but it was also God's way of using David to train others. This event would be monumental in the life of those men who were traveling with David and would mold and shape the training and the type of men that they would be under David years after this. Now, I ask you this question, who is in your circle of influence? Who's being trained by you? Who's being trained by me? Who's watching us? Well, for one, our children. How many of you here are parents? How many of you have children? Quite a few of you. How many of you have younger children? Okay. You know, our children, they watch us. They learn from us. Parents, I want you to listen to this. One of the reasons that Christian kids get disillusioned with church is because they often hear their parents talking about the church or about people in the church when they're driving home from church. They hear that. Could you see what so-and-so was wearing today? Could you believe how long Rob went today? You know, they, they, they hear <laughs> those kind of things. Man, do you know what's going on with so-and-so? And they listen and they hear. They hear things like, you know, there's a lot of hypocrites in that place. 
And they don't even know what a hypocrite is, but they just know it sounds bad. And it's like, you know, I, I don't know. They hear those type of things. And you know what happens in their little hearts? There's a seed planted. They're in their minds, in their hearts. And they, they, they start saying, you know, that, I don't know if that's a place that I want to go. I don't know if that's a place that I want to be a part of. And they get disillusioned with church. It's a seed that's planted and they start looking at it in a, in a tainted type of way because they hear our conversations. Shame on us. Shame on us that we would cause. Jesus warned about causing a little one to be stumbled. Shame on us. One of the things my wife and I have really tried to do because, you know, a lot of you know, there's, there's a whole thing about the PK kids. That's, you know, pastor kids. And, and, and you know, you always hear these horror stories. That they're, the, they're the worst kids around, you know, type of a thing. And, and uh, I, I have a, a really good friend and his kids. They're all, you know, most of them are grown now. And they're just incredible, incredible kids. They love the Lord. They're serving the Lord. They haven't strayed. And, and I asked him once, I said, you know, what, what is it about your kids? You know, they just seem to love the Lord and they love church. And, and he says, you know, my wife and I made it a point that we never, ever talk about church stuff around them. And so all they know about church is all the good stuff. And that's how they view it. That's how they see it. And, and uh, when, when I heard that, it, my wife and I was like, you know, we want to practice that. As, we really want to try to practice that with our kids. I want them to see this as a place that, you know, there's some awesome people here, you know, and that they want to be here, that they would love the, the body of Christ. We need to be careful. Who is going to be influenced by watching you? Your kids, younger Christians, other believers. Listen, we all have a chance to be an influence, be it a good one or be it a bad one. And we can model for them how to wait upon the Lord, allowing him to bring a matter to pass. That's what David is doing here. He's modeling for his men how to wait upon the Lord. He's modeling for his men how to let God work in a situation. David knew about waiting upon the Lord. He writes in Psalm 25, verse 5, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all day. David's saying, I'm, I've learned, I'm learning by waiting. Waiting allows God to teach us. Waiting allows God to work in us. In Psalm 27, verse 14, David said, Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord increases our strength. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In Psalm 62, verse 1 and 2, David wrote, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Waiting on the Lord produces a security, David tells us there. Waiting upon the Lord is so vital. I hope I don't get myself in trouble for this, but my wife is a great lady. She's the best. But she has some flaws. 
She's not perfect, but she's great. And <laughs> one area where, where she can have this flaw, and I thought about using Amanda in this illustration in a fictional kind of way, but I was, as I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, this is just perfect because this is Denise, you know? But, but she, she can find herself at times where she just doesn't want to wait. And let's say in our backyard there's a whole bunch of logs, you know, big heavy logs, and they need to get moved from one part of the backyard to the other part of the backyard. And, and I'll tell my wife, I'll say, okay, so when I get done or when I get home, you know, I'll move them. Or we'll do it together. Well, she hates to wait. I get delayed and I come home and, and there I find her, you know, and she's, you know, trying to pick up these logs and she's getting all dirty and she's hurting her back and, 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 and all of this. And maybe she even does it, but she's worn out. She's a wreck. She's got to go to the chiropractor, you know, afterwards. When I could have done it very easily. That's how we are with God so often. He says, wait, and what are we, we're out there trying to pick up the logs, and we're trying to move this, and we're trying to move that, and and he could do it very easily, and he wants to do it in his time, but it's like, we don't want to wait, and so we get out there, get all dirty, get our, our back and our lives all out of whack, because we're trying to do what God has said, just, just wait, just wait, just trust me, just wait upon me. When a man learns the lesson of waiting on the Lord instead of taking matters into his own hands, he's getting somewhere. He's growing. And in all of this, we see that David was not only learning how to wait on the Lord, but he was also learning to wait for the Lord. Learning to wait for the Lord. We wait on the Lord by prayer and supplication, looking for the indication of his will. But we wait for the Lord by patience and submission, looking for the positioning of his hand. David was determined when he sat on the throne of Israel that it wouldn't be because he got Saul out of the way, but because God got Saul out of the way. He wanted God's fingerprints on that work, not his own. And that is such a huge thing. I've had times early in my years of ministry when I was a youth pastor when my fingerprints were, were on everything that I was involved in. Everything that I was involved in, it was a, you know, my fingerprints were all over the place. And if it happened, you know, it was because of some great plan or strategy or it was my hard work or ingenuity or it was my tenaciousness or, or maneuvering, you know, things into a position. And my fingerprints were all over the place. I look back on some of those things and what a lonely feeling it was because as I looked at it, I go, I don't know if God did that. That was a neat thing that happened there, but I don't know if that was God because my fingerprints were all over the place. And so when I left here and I went to Oregon, at first I went to the opposite extreme. It's like I didn't want to do anything because I wanted to just, you know, God's got to do it all and, and I don't want to have, I don't want to get my hands in there to be so careful it's the biggest blessing to be able to look at something and know god did that i ask you tonight as you look at your life as you look at your family as you look at maybe your area of of ministry that you are involved in whose fingerprints are all over it is it yours or is it the lord's 
David was one as he looked at his life in this situation. David wanted God to put him on the throne and so he was willing to wait. David was content to let let the, the Lord judge between him and Saul. It was F.B. Meyer who said, We win the most when we appear to have yielded the most and gain advantages by refusing to take them wrongfully. The man who can wait for God is a man of power. And David's loyalty to Saul had a profound effect upon David's men. As they were throughout his reign, incredibly loyal, incredibly loyal. There was never an insurrection that happened in David's, in his reign as a king that came from one of these men. We all know about Absalom, but, but there was none that came from these men at this time that were watching David be trained in this way. In fact, Uriah, who was one of these guys, when David tries to bring him home so that he can you know, go have relations with Bathsheba so that, that he'll think that he got her pregnant, Uriah is so loyal, he won't even go home to his wife. He's going to sleep with the servants outside the king's palace. That's how loyal that he was. Now, you might be thinking, You know, this sounds theoretically right, but practically impossible to not want to just do in the souls in our life. Well, in Matthew, Jesus gives us two important insights into dealing with the souls in our life. Notice there on the screen, we read from Matthew 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Notice Jesus is saying, you want to prove that you are a child of your Father? Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. That's in essence what he's saying here. It was love for fallen humanity that led Jesus to go to the cross, which was the greatest display of love. And it was also love that there on the cross that led Jesus to look down at those who had beaten him and spit upon him and pulled out his beard and thrust you know, uh, spikes into his hands and into his feet and a crown of thorns upon his head. It, it was that love that led Jesus to look at them and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to do. Now, how do we do that? Well, God's commandments are his enablements. We do that through the power of the Holy Spirit working there in our hearts. But Jesus gives us some insight here of how it practically works to love our enemies. There in verse 44, he says, bless them that curse you and do good to those that hate you. How do you do that? You, you bless them. What does it mean to bless someone? You bestow happiness on them. To whom? To those who curse you. To those who hate you. To those who wish you evil and destruction upon you. Bless them. In other words, find ways to show kindness to them. Now, I know that's hard. It goes against our very human nature. It does. Our very human nature wants to lash out, it wants revenge, it wants to go, you know, you hit me, I'm going to hit you harder. You break my nose, I'm going to break your arms, both of them, and your legs. You know, that's our human nature. You dent my car, I'm going to total yours. I mean, that's our human nature. That's our human nature. But, but friends, church, haven't we been given a new nature? 
Haven't we been given a new nature? Yeah, John says in his epistle that God has placed his seed, his spirit inside of us. You and I, we're a, we're a new creation. We've been given a new nature. A nature that is after the spirit. And the things of the spirit. And that's why he says to walk in the spirit. It's amazing when we can take God's words at face value and say, okay, this is what God tells me to do. This is what I'm going to do. And you know what? Your heart might not be into it at first, but you do the actions and your heart will follow. Your heart will follow. God will work on your heart. He can't change your heart. Or he can change your heart, but he can't change your mind. But if you change your mind, he will change your heart. So you say, okay, I'm going to do what you say. And so here I go, Lord. And, and, and you say, I'm going to bless him. I'm just going to find ways today to just make him happy. To just show kindness to him. Whatever it might be. And God begins to work on your heart. Bless them, do good to them. And then the next thing, pray for them. Pray for them. Sure, I'll pray for them. God, break their faces. You know. No, pray for them. That's not the context here when he's talking about bless them, do good to them. It's not pray that God destroys them. You know, it's, it's praying blessing upon those people. Why? Something happens when I pray for people. You see, I cannot continue to be mad at someone that I'm praying for. In fact, you will get more angry with every evil desire that you harbor towards them as you start praying for them and often what happens as you're praying for them is you begin to gain insight concerning who they are and their situation and maybe why they're acting in that way and you gain insight and compassion concerning them you can't not be in the throne room of God and be angry because you'll find that there at the throne room of God where you're before the one who looked at his accusers and his, the ones who beat him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That when you're in the throne room of that king, that he begins to melt your heart. He begins to work on your heart. Prayer, it's, the old adage is true. Prayer changes things. And the first thing it starts to change is me. It changes us. It changes you. Well, note the reaction that David's love had upon Saul. Verse 16, we'll wrap it up. It says, so it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, that Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. I don't know about you, but I start to kind of feel sorry for Saul here. Because I see the struggle. I see the dilemma. I see, you know, time and time again where he's realizing, gosh, I'm such an idiot. Why am I doing this? Why am I acting in this way? Here's another one. He's lifting up his voice. He's weeping. Here's the king. Look at his men. They're probably thinking, you know, what's wrong with this guy? He brings us out here. We finally find him. Now he's crying, you know, like a baby here as David's from, you know, talking to him from the entrance there of the cave. Verse 17, then he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know Indeed, that you shall surely be king. This probably blessed David to hear this. And the kingdom of Israel shall be established 
in your hand. Therefore, swear to me now by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And so David swore to Saul and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul was a man who spent his final days battling against God, but when he encounters the love and the patience of God demonstrated through David, his heart is melted. It melted his hardened heart. It was almost like a flash of lightning that Saul sees his own stupidity and folly, and that's why the practice of love is so important. Love has the ability to break down the most powerful of barriers. It has a way of stripping people of their defenses that allows them to be open to the message of the gospel. The love that melts a person's heart to the point of being open to receiving the love of Christ often starts with the love that is shown and seen in us. Now, the problem with Saul here is it wasn't lasting. He's a yo-yo. I mean, he's just up and down and all around. He experiences emotion and sorrow, tears and remorse. He confesses. He sees that he's wrong, but he doesn't change. There's no repentance. And I ask you this question. What good are the tears, the confession, if he doesn't act upon that remorse? The emotions are great if it awakens a person to their sinful condition and results in them turning from their sin. Otherwise, it's pointless. And that's the problem here with Saul. What are the lessons that we learn here in this chapter? Number one, that every believer is anointed of the Lord because the Holy Spirit is in him. Number two, difficult people are often God's instruments to do a work in our lives. Number three, we must learn the importance of waiting on the Lord instead of taking matters into our own hands. And number four, if we are going to be like Jesus, we need to bless and pray for those who have wronged us. And number five, God's kindness demonstrated through our lives can melt the hardest of hearts. Let's pray. Father, Our hearts are definitely stirred as we consider your servant, David. And we see him responding and acting in such a godly manner. In such a godly way. Lord, it blesses us. But it also challenges us. It moves us. And Lord... I pray tonight in this moment that we would examine our hearts. That we would look to see if there's maybe someone even this day that we've cut up with our tongue. We've maimed with our criticalness. And Lord, we just want to come before you tonight in true repentance and ask that you would work in us that we might see each other the way that you do. We bless your name. I'd like us just to remain in this attitude of prayer right now. And as we sing this song, I want you to take a moment and just pray in what we've been talking about tonight. And maybe there is somebody in your life that 
lately you realize, you know what, man? I struck the Lord's anointed. Bring that to the Lord. Ask him to touch you. To forgive you. To change you. Maybe you look at a situation and you realize, you know, I've just taken this into my own hands. Your fingerprints are all over it. Give it to the Lord right now. Start afresh tonight in that situation. Let him know you're willing to wait upon him no matter how long it takes. As we sing this song, you you just deal with that. Pray with that. Pray, pray that in and give that to the Lord. Mm-hmm.